My name is Seth Manukin. I'm the uh, director of the Communications Forum. Um, thank you all very much for coming out today. Uh, before we start, a couple of quick announcements. Um, one, we have a mailing list over here. Uh, please sign up for it. We will only send you notices about upcoming communications forums. Um, so you will not be spammed by us. Uh, and we try and schedule three uh, pretty interesting forums a semester. Um, our next one this semester is on sexual harassment uh, and covering sexual harassment in science um, and some scandals that have cropped up over the last couple of years. Uh, this forum is also co-sponsored by Radius um, at MIT. Uh, unfortunately, the, the, the people from Radius could not be here tonight because they're out of town in the conference, um, but we're very grateful to them. Uh, and tonight, um, I'm going to be speaking with Jamel Bowie. Um, Jamel is the chief political correspondent for Slate and a political analyst for CBS News. Uh, he's a former staff writer at the Daily Beast and a writing fellow at the American Prospect Magazine. Um, and his work has also appeared in the New Yorker, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, the Nation, and many other places. Um, I've been a fan uh, of Jamel's for many years and um, was absolutely thrilled when he agreed to come here. So please join me in welcoming Jamel. So for those of you for whom this is your first Com Forum, um, the structure is we have a conversation for roughly an hour, and then um, we have questions from the audience uh, for roughly an hour. Um, when you ask questions, I'll ask you to come up to the microphone, not because we can't hear you, but because this is recorded for people who can't make it and want to listen to it later, and they won't be able to hear your questions unless you speak into the microphone. So, um, so I wanted to start actually by just asking a little bit about um, your career. I know you were not someone who majored in journalism or uh, did journalism in college. So how did you get involved in journalism? Yeah. Um, first, thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm always impressed by people who come out to like, talks uh, on, <laughs> on school nights. I did not do that uh, in college or anything. So uh, bullied all of you. Um, uh, yeah, so I, in college, I studied uh, government and philosophy. And I, I think my impression, my last year of school, um, and I went to the University of Virginia, my impression was that I would either go to law school, which is like what UVA kids do, um, or I would get a grad degree and do policy work or something like that. Uh, but I graduated in 2009, and sort of my last two years of school, of course, were the, the 2008 presidential primaries and the election. And I've always been kind of a politics nerd. Uh, and so I, I think in like late 07, I decided to start a blog because that's what people were doing at the time. Uh, and kind of kept up this, this blog following the election in Virginia for a long time, for like, you know, all through my third year, through my fourth year. And after I graduated, um, that sort of, the, I kept on writing the blog and, and the readership kind of got up and I started getting offers to, to write freelance pieces. And of course, this means, you know, 500 words here or there for like 50 bucks, right? Right. Um, but which is which would be high these days? Right, right. <laughs> that would be you know that would <laughs> a princely sum. Today. Um, th these days they would just not pay you. Um, but through that, I ended up meeting not just like editors and such, but other writers. Uh -huh. And um, through kind of 
kind of like a basically networking. Like all of us kind of, we're all sort of college age and we all just graduated and we're all writing. Um, let's kind of share information and share you know, leads for, uh, for people who are looking for work. Um, and through all of this, I heard about the American Prospects Writing right. Fellowship. Right. Uh, and so I applied for it. Just at around the same time, I was, the job I had was just sort of like an a administrative job at the university. Um, that was at the Miller, the Miller Center, Center of yeah. Public Affairs at UVA. They were about to fire me, which, no hard feelings. Um, they did. Because of something you had done? Or no, 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 just, just because they didn't have money to pay me right. anymore. So I was like, sorry, Jamel, but you got you to gotta, right, you know, right. find a job. Um, so I was about to lose that job, and I, I was applying for the American Prospect position, and they, uh, they hired me. And so when you started out, were you covering um, a certain beat? What were, how did you figure out what to write about at the start? At the start, so the, the Writing Fellowship is an interesting program because there aren't very many ones like it. I mm -hmm. think in magazine journalism, at least, um, it is a kind of, it's not an internship, it's a fully paid um, with benefits, like staff job more or less, uh, but reserved for people who have little to no journalism experience. Uh, and usually people who are either just out of college or just out of grad school. And the, the idea of it is that you'll kind of just learn how to do this, learn how to be a journalist you know, by doing, right. um, and go from there. And so when I was hired, they basically were like, hey, midterm elections are happening this year. This is 2010. Cover them. Right. Um, if you need any help, any assistance or guidance, feel free to ask. Uh, but we're, we're sure you can figure so it they out. They threw you into the deep end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it was very frustrating for like the first year and a half. And one of my colleagues, who's a very good friend now, we got into. She was my, also my editor at the time, and I think we got into at least like two screaming matches about you know sourcing. And and it's, it's sourcing because she felt like you weren't sourcing properly. Right, or? right. <laughs> I was like, I, what, was she, what what more do you want me to do? Was she correct? Yeah, she was totally right. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was in the wrong one hundred percent. Right. And uh, I apologized to her. Um, and so covering politics right off the bat, and covering, um, I mean, my uh, since two thousand eight, I think the political coverage and the response to political coverage, um, both because of social media and because of the election of Obama, has been um, charged in a way that it hasn't always. I mean, when I covered the 2000 campaign, if people wanted to yell at me, they would have to send me a physical letter um, <laughs> or find my email address somehow. That sounds wonderful. Yes, I, yeah, and I could either respond or not. Um, the big debate then was whether to have comments on articles. Uh, but from the moment um, you started, you had this sort of instant, um, not only feedback, but a very healthy trolling culture. Uh, so what was that like? I mean, did that, for someone who, who, who had not been trained in journalism, was that off-putting? Was that? You know, I honestly, I can't, <laughs> the, that kind of like trolling or, uh, you know, just sort of nastiness has been such a part of my online life, right. professional life for so long at this point that I, I do not remember my initial reaction to it. Um, you just take it for granted. Yeah, I just take it. It's just like a part. It's just like it exists in the world. Right. Um, I think, you know, I'm I'm kind of by disposition like hard to get a rise out of, and I think that helped um, uh, being confronted with uh, nasty trolling or like uh, attacks or such. You know, 
I can kind of say these are like, like I'm not an actual person to them in some sense. Like I'm this abstraction that they really disagree with. And right. so I kind of learned how to not take it very personally. Um, and since then, right, again, it's just kind of a, a daily part of the of the job, especially writing about you know racial inequality and, and all of these things that get gets that get people very upset um, and very angry. And so, why do you why do you think it is that you um, were able to have this sort of thick skin from from right off the bat uh, and and not respond to? Um, I mean, I, I haven't gone back and looked at people who were trolling you in two thousand ten, but um, what I imagine are oftentimes pretty personal attacks or comments. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, some of it, again, is, is, is dispositional, and that re just reflects my upbringing. My parents were in the military. I had kind of a military-ish upbringing. Right. Kind of um, uh, learned at an... It was drilled into me at an early age um, to disregard, uh, for lack of a better word, bu uh, bullshit. Right. You're allowed so, to swear here. It's okay, okay, okay. okay. Right. <laughs> well, we, had, no. we, had, we had Leslie. You're ready. We, we, we had Leslie Jones here over <laughs> the weekend, so the, the, the barrier to what's acceptable has, has uh, um, gone down. Okay, yes. all right. And, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. There's, you know, just the, the extent to which some of the stuff you can almost laugh about, um, mm -hmm. and, and this is something, and I should say, right, that, like, I get a lot of trolling, but sort of the tenor of it is different than, say, some of my women colleagues, right. who the attacks that face them are very personal and are usually like sexually charged and right. um, uh, kind of involve some like threat of harm. Whereas for me, it's like you know racial slurs, kind of you're dumb, that kind of stuff, and right. it's often uh, poorly written and like it's <laughs> it's it's often like. Comical in a lot of ways. Trolls aren't the most intelligent right, people exactly. out online. Um, and so it, it's a bit easier to kind of just shrug off or, or disregard. Uh, and if it, there happens to be a lot of it, you just, you know, leave the internet. Right, right. Is that something that you've ever considered, like leaving social media or... Because I've, I've gone through periods where, and I don't need to deal with uh, um, a fraction of what you deal with. I don't write about politics most of the time. But I've taken sort of extended breaks just because um, uh, the vitriol I felt like was starting to infect my the rest of my life is that now, sometimes I'll just you know I'll, I'll delete Twitter off my phone and and I have a little app on my computer that only lets you broadcast a tweet but you can't see anything huh. else right and so if I need to like that's brilliant tweet out a piece I can just like do that and kind of leave it alone right so but um, then you get people who are furious with you because you haven't responded to them. Right, right. Who, who assume that because they've heard you on podcasts or read you and, and that you have some sort of friendship or relationship and so then get pissed when you're not fulfilling their expectations. And that's kind of the odd thing I think about digital journalism right now, uh -huh. especially for people who write with a voice. I'm not sure it's quite the same right. for people who are straight like news wire reporters. Service. Yeah, yeah, wire yeah. service reporter. But for those of us who write with a voice, um, you're doing a lot of stuff. So you, you are writing and you have like usually a very distinctive writerly voice. You're podcasting, you're showing up on TV maybe, you're showing up on radio shows and it's entirely possible, right, for someone to kind of ex hear you and read you and experience you in all these different ways right. and like 
begin to uh, have like a kind of relationship with you, but it's not really a relationship, right? Like I, I'm not, I don't know you, you don't know me. Um, you know this like very tiny slice of, or modest slice right. of, uh, of my life. And so I have, you know, people have emailed me like, hey, why don't you respond to my tweets? And it's like, because I, I literally have no idea that you're sending them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. It's something personal, just like, I don't know that they're coming. So uh, one of the interesting things um, for me about history and about living through history is that um, I find that oftentimes I can think that the present is inevitable. And something that struck me about the 2016 election is that it's sort of impossible to think that the present is inevitable because so many people um, on both sides of the aisle assumed that there was going to be a very different outcome. Right. Um, and you were someone who, uh, who, who I think also thought that it was extremely unlikely that Trump would either get the nomination or be elected. I thought it was pretty likely to get the nomination. That he'd get the nomination? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so that's interesting. What, what made you think it was likely that he'd get the nomination? Because I remember when he first entered in and came down the staircase and um, uh, a lot of the media and a lot of the GOP was treating him as sort of a buffoon. So what made you think that there was a likelihood that he was going to get the nomination? It was actually two discrete moments. The first was after... Like a week after he announced, or two weeks after he announced, he said that thing about John McCain, right? That like I, I like people who don't yep. get captured. Yeah, yeah. And there's this huge firestorm, and you know, people are like, he's, he's done. Like no one can recover from this. And I, I didn't like. I just kind of was observing the whole time, and nothing happened. Right? right. Like in fact, his numbers went up afterwards, and that was when I was like, hey, this is unusual, um, and maybe we we shouldn't dismiss his chances of winning. The nomination, and the second thing was just going to a Trump rally. I went to one in Dallas, I think, in September. Um, so early on, yeah, early on, yeah. and just the the level of enthusiasm. You know, I've I've been to enough um, like presidential primary events to get a sense of right. what seems to really have legs and what doesn't. Um, and just from that rally, it was like this thing has legs. Uh, but you know that. So I, I wasn't terribly skeptical that he would, that he would win because just like everything points in that direction like the numbers the enthusiasm like everything and, and the rest of the field and the rest no of the one. field yeah, it right. was so crowded right like it was it was you know you had Jeb Bush with a hundred million dollars who was like this zombie candidate and, yeah. who no one liked but I mean we all kind of liked him like a you know, poor Jeb Bush kind of way right. um, but certainly in comparison <laughs> we liked him um, but in terms of like you know actual support among voters, there just wasn't it just wasn't there. But he had all this all these resources so he could kind of just stay in, right. uh, and you could kind of tell a similar story with so many of the other candidates. Um, but come when the when the general election came, I you know frankly I was just like listen, every sign points against this guy. Like he's very unpopular. Uh, he's up against a pretty durable electoral coalition. Right. You know, if you were and I think, you know, it's been a couple months now since the election, and there's still this kind of narrative going on that because analysts and prognosticators and such didn't call Trump's win, therefore they must be useless. Yeah, right. Um, but that, I think, misunderstands how sort of statistics and probability works, right. right? That, like, saying that Trump just has a quarter of a chance of winning and is unlikely to win does not does mean... Does not mean he's not going to win. Right, does right. not mean that you that, that you can't have... Um, that 25% happened. There was this amazing flip, um, specifically around 538, where 
they were getting enormous criticism leading up to the election for saying that he had a 25% chance uh, and people accusing them of just trolling for numbers, trolling for, for, for clicks. Uh, then to afterwards when he won saying, well, this shows that places like that are useless because right. they only said he had a 25% chance of winning. And I, th I think it's hard for people to understand that, j that in probably, prob uh, I can never say the word out loud, um, in terms of probability, right, we can only we can only experience one outcome, right? Right, and so when it happens, it seems it's 100%. like one hundred percent, right? And it seems like in the way just people's minds work, they kind of backfill. Well, it happened, and therefore it must have been an inevitable. When before that, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, and we can only kind of guess based off all this other information. And all the other information strongly suggested that that wouldn't be the outcome, right? Um, yeah, I mean, for for my part, if I'm thinking things I wish I would have done during the general election, it would have just been to take a little more seriously the chance that Trump could win. To right. like, kind of always keep that as an open possibility, and I was probably a little too certain that he wouldn't. Um, but I don't think that that certainty was uh, completely unwarranted. I mean, like... Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> this is a dude... <laughs> this is a dude who we heard on camera brag about sexually assaulting women. Yeah. And I feel like it's really reasonable to say, oh, someone who does that probably won't win the presidency. Right. I feel like it's a reasonable judgment to make. And, and not, I mean, the thing that was um, one of the many things that was so shocking about the 2016 election is there were a dozen things like that where you could say it's pretty reasonable to assume that someone who does X or Y or Z is not going to elected, be elected president. Um, and I want to come back to that um, a little bit in terms of uh, whether that was a failure of imagination on sort of on, on large segments of the country and, and the press. But before that, um, one of the big narratives about the 2016 election, I think one of the most important narratives, is the way that racial divisiveness um, really came to the forefront in, in a manner that had not been true uh, for several generations, at least. Um, you know, Trump began his campaign talking about Mexicans and building a wall and rapists. Um, was there um, a moment leading up to either his getting the nomination or afterwards when you felt like um, that type of rhetoric was uh, being sanctioned in a way that had not been true previously in, in our lifetime? I mean, I think it was his winning the nomination, and not just winning the nomination, but the speed with which other Republicans yeah. fell in line, right? Um, it's actually not that difficult to imagine, uh, and this kind of gets back to your earlier point that you know things are not inevitable. You, it's not it's not hard to imagine Trump's opponents, um, the never Trumpers, in the GOP, forthrightly saying openly that you know yes he's our nominee, but you know this is unacceptable. I cannot support him. Um, so on and so forth. Instead of what happened was either staying quiet or like kind of saying, well, he's nominee and I have to support him. Right. As, so there was that weird moment where Ted Cruz was like the courageous member of the GOP. Right, right. Um, <laughs> truly living in a bizarre world. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Uh, as soon as that happened, it did, I think, sanction um, that kind of rhetoric. And I think, I mean, and this kind of goes back to sort of what did what did folks miss uh, during the during the election, and this is something I'm I'm still thinking about, which is that we tend to think of the use of that explicitly racist rhetoric as um, 
being something that is in addition to the, like the political stew, but doesn't really fundamentally change the character of it. But right. what if it does fundamentally change the character of it? What if, what if the fact that Trump campaigned using that kind of rhetoric and that kind of rhetoric was broadly sanctioned by the by his party? What if that kind of changed how voters themselves made their calculations? Um, in what in what way? In the sense that. In the sense that maybe you are someone who did not much care for Republican tax policies, but you are very angry about um, sort of like rapid racial change. Right. And the Republican Party is now signaling to you that it is a party for people who have a problem with that. With rapid um, racial change, right. right. Um, there is, you know, if you look at the turnout numbers, there was an increase in white turnout from 2012 to 2016. Right. Um, and it was heavily based in rural sectors. And it wasn't, you know, as far as we can tell, it wasn't low-income people. It wasn't, right. it wasn't sort of the... Yeah, I there's that the, myth that, that, yeah. The image right. of the Trump voter is sort of, uh, you know, a beaten down and from a blue collar. Yeah, yeah, Rust Belt, um, right. These were, you know, and, and I kind of grew up in a place like this. These are people who own, like, big homes on, like, big tracts of land who maybe don't really engage with politics that much. And something about Trump made them engage with politics. And that something changed the electorate. Um, and my hunch is that it's, it's, it's just the racism. And so, I mean, that's, that's something that you wrote about um, before the election also, about um, the extent to which racism was um, sort of a necessary component of being a Trump voter. Um, and uh, and and whether you know whether um, Hillary Clinton's classification of half of Trump voters is deplorable um, was uh, unfair. Never mind if it was politically expedient or not. Um, and you said pretty consistently that you thought that um, people who were voting for a racist candidate uh, probably held racist views on some level. Or, or I, I think less that they held racist views, but that like racist views weren't fundamentally objectionable. To right. Them, okay. Right? That like. Right. That. Um, is there a different? I mean, I think I think I think I think there's I think there's not much of a practical difference. Right. right? Like, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't like that he's saying racist things, uh, but I'm still going to vote for for him anyway. It doesn't mean anything if you are the the target of the racist things. Right. right? Um, but for those voters, it obviously it's means different. something. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. For yeah, they experience right. it differently. Um, but I, I do think that you, yeah, to, to, to have cast a ballot um, for a campaign that never hid its racial content uh, meant like really one of three things, that you agreed with that racial content, that it did not, it was not particularly objectionable to you, or that you didn't understand that racial, that racist content as being racist. You may maybe thought it was just common sense, which kind of is like the first one, except right. like with less self-awareness. Right, right. So what would be an example an, exa that. an example would be, it's not racist that Trump said, you know, uh, the Mexicans were sending rapists because, because like there are, are there are some, yeah, yeah, there yeah, are right, some right, Mexicans right. Who, who rape. So right, right, I don't right. see what the problem is. Right, right. Um, so one thing, I, I've been thinking a lot recently about um, the, the sort of alternative fact universe and the fake news um, and wondering how that uh, plays into this notion that voting for Trump um, uh, at least accepts part of his worldview. Um, and I, I'm, I'm worried I might not be being as precise or eloquent as I could be here, but what I mean is if you are getting your information from 
um, Breitbart or uh, or Infowars, or Infowars might be an extreme example. Um, then you are you're reading a narrative that um, most uh, Hispanics living in the country support the wall. That um, you know the reason Trump won was because of this surge in turnout in Hispanic Americans who are upset about illegal immigration. Um, uh, that. Um, uh, you know, he has, um, he has approval in the minority community that we're not aware of because the mainstream media won't report that. Um, so it, does that, first of all, it, what are your thoughts about that? And second of all, does that um, affect the idea that Trump voters are sort of uh, implicitly or complicitly accepting what voters who think that the New York Times is the real right, news right. believe? So as far as what I think about those sort of narratives, which are you know very present on websites like Breitbart and Infowars, and even sort of their less uh, less extreme but still problematic uh, uh, competitors and, and and such, like who would their like Daily Caller yeah, yeah, and, right. and websites like that. Um, I mean, I think it, I think it's I think it's it's I mean it's it is actually fake news. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is not factually the case. Uh, and it's 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 just worth saying this, right? That in the in last year's election, the exit polls suggested that Trump basically won like typical numbers among Latinos and African Americans for a Republican presidential candidate. But like subsequent research suggests that Trump's numbers with Latinos was much lower than what the exit polls suggested, right. like around around the seventeen to eighteen percent. Um, uh, range in that among African Americans around seven or eight percent, which are both like lows. Right, but um, but but still high compared to the day before the election, what some people were predicting. Right. Well, yeah. I, th I think I think the the best estimates for Latin, like the low lowest one I saw for Latino voting was like fifteen percent. Right. Um, and that most people thought it fall between fifteen and twenty. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of wrong on that level. But on the sort of if, if that's their fact universe and what does what can we ascertain about them you know the part of the history of racism in this country is of um of white americans in particular developing narratives to sort of justify the status quo that they've imposed right, right. and so to justify white supremacy right so in the 1950s it wasn't that in, in the in the in the south it wasn't that uh, African Americans living under Jim Crow were very unhappy about this. It was that outside agitators were coming and riling people up, and that if you actually that's talk the, to that's the narrative. That's the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Right. That if you actually talk to people, if you, if you talk right. to them, they would tell you that they're happy with the way things are. Right. Or that uh, on the eve of the Civil War, or even you know in 1861 and 1862, uh, you had Southern plantation owners saying, "Well, I'm not worried that." My slaves are going to run away or rebel they're because right. they're happy here. Right. Why would they do that? Right. Um, go back further, 1840s. You have entire uh, uh, dis disorders being imagined, um, uh, draptomania, right? which is the, one of the most incredible. Do, do, do things. people know about this? It's it's the it's the craziest thing you'll ever hear. Um, I mean, not ever, but it's pretty crazy. So was, yeah. Uh, uh, Enslaved people were running away. <laughs> Makes sense. And uh, plantation owners were like, why is this happening? Like, why are they running away? Uh, and this, this well-regarded well physician and writer um, in this uh, from journal the South. I don't from, from New Orleans. From New Orleans. In the journal, medical journal New Orleans, 
wrote that what, what's happening is that these enslaved people are suffering from a disorder. They, they, they want to be free, and that's just like not with the nature of, of black people. Right. And so they, they, and in fact, that if you go look at free black people, they are noticeably worse off than their enslaved uh, uh, brethren. And so he called this, uh, he called this disease drapetomania. Um, this sort of this mental disorder to make you want to be free when your nature says that you shouldn't be free. And I mean, the incredible thing about it is that this was a debate along the lines of a debate today about whether um, you know ADHD is properly diagnosed. Right. As it, th this wasn't like some crazy view. The American Medical Association was saying like, "Well, this is we should discuss this. Let's see." <laughs> um, which, uh, which, yeah, I think it did not get uh, ultimately adopted by the AMA. Thankfully, um, as a disorder, but the fact that there was this this ongoing discussion right. about that, and so right. it's just to make the point that like that there will always be narratives created and and disseminated in order to justify um, uh, choices or actions that that bolster white supremacy and, and white hegemony, uh, and I, I tend to see um, you know when when the when a 60 plus million people vote for a candidate who ran an explicitly racist campaign, and the response to that is, um, uh, well, you know, some Latinos voted for him too, some blacks voted for him right. too, or kind of deflecting from that, I, I tend to see that those narratives, in some sense, trying to justify that choice, or at least to say that no one who voted should be held responsible for right. the, the, the consequences of that vote. And that, that, that's something that you've written about very eloquently and that I've, um, I've struggled with. There was a piece in which uh, you wrote about how, and in the turn of the century, in the turn of the 20th century, how um, you know, good Americans were bringing their kids to watch lynchings. Um, and uh, this was not you know, abnormal. This was seen as an American thing to do. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, I guess that's just a concept that I struggle with, whether we will look back at the 2016 election um, with the same type of horror that we now, that, that 99% of our society views lynchings, um, or whether the fact that the violence that is occurring is sort of one step removed right. will allow us to um, to pretend that that's not what was going on now. I mean, I think I think I think American history suggests that the latter will end up being true, right? That the fact that most people are not going to experience a deportation raid, they're right. not going to see images of um, you know, Muslim Americans being harassed and abused. These things are not going to appear to them. Um, if, they're, if, they're, if the upsurge in activity from you know, violent uh, white supremacist groups continues to go on, most people are not going to experience any kind yeah, of like, right. hate crimes or whatnot. Or, and they're also not going to experience, um, uh, be observers right. of that. I mean, and, um, and so if, if, you know, if that's true, then it does become very easy to say, um, to, to, to deny that those were the consequences of, of, of the vote and, and to say that this is not what this was about. And my view is that like, you kind of already see the ground being laid for that, that the, not just the um, preoccupation with the narrative of economic anxiety, which again is like a fact, is like, it's both true and not true. It's true right. in the sense that there were members of the Trump coalition who did feel some sort of ec feel economic anxiety. It's not true in the sense that they were particularly representative and it's not true in the, in the sense, overall Trump electorate. In the overall yeah, Trump yeah. electorate. And it's not true in the, um, 
in the idea that that's somehow also separate from racial anxiety, that, that in America, the two things are very much linked. Um, but the, the, the ongoing push to say that this was an election about economic anxiety, to say that, uh, which, which, which sort of implicitly also says that if you're feeling that kind of anxiety, then the political choices you make can, in, in a sense, be excused, right? That, like, right. You, were, you were not acting rationally, and so we cannot hold your actions against you. Um, that suggests to me that the, the re regardless of what happens over the next four to eight years, um, that will that will be the takeaway. That the right. the collective judgment will be, you know, people were hurting and they made a bad choice, but we can't hold that choice against them. And is there anything that? could occur that would that would change that narrative that would force us to confront what's going on more directly i hope um i hope i you know Although i was about to say i hope not because it seems like that would that could potentially be some yeah it would be conflagration yeah, no. yeah i mean the only thing the only thing i can think of that would be within the realm of plausibility and like something that i can imagine happening that isn't isn't so extreme I mean, it's extreme, but sort of like it's not outside the realm of the possible. Would be uh, if we, if if the if we there was a terrorist attack um, in the United States, and the response was like internment camps for for Muslim immigrants and um, uh, Muslim Americans. Right. Uh, that that I don't think is outside the realm of possibility. Right. Uh, looking at the actions of the past month, and I would hope that if that happened people would begin to actually confront what, what was elected in 2016. And I should say, I'm not saying that there needs to be some mass, you know, ostracization. Yeah, no, it's another word I tip over. Um, <laughs> Everyone I'm, knows. Yeah, I'm not yeah. saying we should shun right. uh, uh, Trump voters by, by no means. That would, that would end up like, you know, shunning a good chunk of people we went to high school with. Um, but I am saying that political choices actually do carry moral content. Right. And if we are actually invested in making this a more tolerant and open society, then you can't simply say, well, people who voted for this thing don't have to reflect on it. Um, they don't have to reflect on it because it's, it's you know, I, what did I read in... Um, a Nick Kristoff column today. It's insulting to suggest that they might be bigots, right? Like, who cares if it's insulting, yeah, right? Yeah, like, right? Like, why are you so preoccupied with the notion that it might be insulting to people rather than the consequences of what that right, actually as opposed was? Right, as opposed to what the consequence will be for the people who are going to be discriminated right. against. Right, Like, they, you know, some, yeah. this, this isn't about, you know, this isn't about whether someone's insulted. It's about what are we going to do about the fact that We've empowered um, a really a lot of really ugly forces in this country, right. and that that's going to mean something for people, and it's not going to be pleasant. So, that's what I want to see. That's what I hope. I, uh, those are the conversations I, I, I want uh, to happen. I you know I don't think they're going to, um, unfortunately, which leaves me in the situation where I'm constantly saying this thing. Like right. It's kind of a recurring part of my uh, of my public dialogue. And it creates the impression that this is all I think about, which is right. it's not. Right. But it's something that I, I don't want to get. I don't. I hope it doesn't get lost in the, in the in, in everything that's going on. So, uh, moving away from from Trump voters, uh, one of the things, another one of the things that's been striking to me is how 
the racial dialogue um, has changed, not just in how we're discussing the election, but also how people who, um, how white people who are uh, very opposed to Trump are talking about race, sometimes in ways that are very uncomfortable to me. Um, and I know you've spoken um, and written before about sort of being asked to give the black point of view, or you know, be, someone on Twitter will, uh, will 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 send you a message and say, "Oh, I, I saw this. What do you think of that?" Um, as if you can somehow be representative for uh, for black people. Um, is that something that 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 sort of level of awkwardness and uncomfortability um, uh, among, um, among white Americans who would be uh, and who are predisposed to oppose Trump and support Obama. Um, is that something, well, how is that, yeah. is that something you've noticed and how has that affected you? It is something I've noticed. Um, I've, I've had a lot more conversations. I've seen a lot more conversations among uh, uh, white Americans about race. I think this is good uh, for the most part. I think, you know, the, at a certain point, black Americans, Latinos, like we're not the majority of the country. Mm -hmm. And so um, at a certain point, like this, in some sense, isn't our total responsibility, right? Like this is ultimately a thing that like white Americans have to figure out amongst themselves. When you themselves. say our, our what what is Like it? sort of like fixing it, right? Yeah, that yeah, like, yeah. like right. solving racial inequality ultimately is have, gonna have to be a project of white Americans. But not only solving it, I mean, it seems like you're oftentimes asked, um, or not you, uh, but, um, uh, but um, black writers uh, and, and, and blacks who are in the public sphere are asked by white people what they should think. Right, right. Um, and so that's- know, As someone who's racially, uh, who's who's racially advanced in my thinking? What? How am I supposed to feel about this, right. Jamal? Um, <laughs> so what's what's interesting about that, right, is that it's the problem. And I think in this conversation you're referencing, which I did with um, uh, a colleague of mine, Aisha Harris, and then two of our friends, right, Jean right. Demby and um, Tressie uh, uh, Cot Cottom. Um, I think the thing that we all kind of identified as the problem isn't necessarily the question, right? Like we're, we, we are in the public eye. Like mm -hmm. we, this, we have made these discussions part of our careers, and so we're going to talk about them. I think the issue is oftentimes these questions are posed, or these conversations are, are people tend to have the conversations in a way that avoids them being implicated or avoids them in, encountering any discomfort. Sort of wanting to right. wanting to have a conversation, but have a conversation with like. Uh, a bumper lane, and that's like frustrating because, you know, it 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 puts limits on what on what on what we can say, right? Like, it, it's hard to be honest when you know that like maybe like complete honesty would just make someone feel bad, make some stranger feel bad, um, and that's and I think in that conversation we all pushed against that pretty hard and and said essentially that for these conversations to have any real worth to them the possibility of someone feeling bad has to be there, right? Like it has to be, you ha the person initiating it has to be open to, the, to the, uh, the chance that they will feel implicated or um, they will even maybe even feel attacked. Right. And we'll have to like deal with that emotionally. Uh, yeah, if, if, as long as, as long as, <laughs> as long as, 
people are open to the chance that they might get like roasted in a conversation about right, race right. and like we're all fine. Um, but so you, you, so you know, for example, or like, um, uh, would an example of that be um, a, 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 a white reader or anyone um, comes to you and asks a question, "What am I supposed to feel about this?" And a response that could make them feel uncomfortable is, "How is it that you don't have any black people in your life that you're close enough to ask this?" To? Yes, <laughs> right. right, right, yeah. Um, which is also part of the part of the the kind of the the funny dynamic here. And it's not just being asked questions; it's sort of being asked questions in this almost intimate way. Right. It's like I don't know. I can't. Like that's a conversation you, you got to have with someone that you're close with. That you, yeah. Um, I can't help you there. Uh, and, and then the, and then the, the response of like I'm on the I'm on the good side. Right, 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 right. And it's like I, there's um, and I, I have no like you know succinct way of, of putting this, but there's there is this phenomena in which being uh, a person of color and being public and being a writer and writing about these issues or even not writing about these mm -hmm. issues, people sort of assume that you have. Um, some sort of hidden knowledge or hidden hidden wisdom that you, that you don't necessarily a hidden knowledge or hidden wisdom like like you would know how to solve this right you would if, you know well how sh what should we do to have better conversations right, right, I have no right, idea what you should do right, to have better right, conversations right, um, right try having conversations in the first place right, uh, right. and and so and, and I do I do think some of this is just kind of it's it's a kind of native discomfort Americans have uh, with with talking about race, and they want to again they want to they want to put that discomfort on someone else rather than kind of just tackle it. Well, and on. I think it's it's something that I think is in some ways especially um, acute in northern cities where you're much more likely to have um, uh, to where, where, where the overall populace is much more likely to be democratic and um, to be liberal democratic. Uh, but in some ways, you, those areas are much less segregated than a lot of the rest of the country. So you have populations that politically line up one way and then in their daily life in some ways have very little interaction with yeah. the people that um, that that they're talking about and uh, it's a it's a it's a fascinating phenomena that's occurring you know um, so long after the civil rights movement and that we still see that in northern cities right right I mean that that's um, I'm from I'm from Virginia my family's from the south and so the striking thing to me always coming from down south, especially where a lot of my relatives live in, in northern Florida and southern Georgia, it's just like how rigidly segregated the north can be. Yeah. Um, like I'm not gonna pretend that say you know, uh, uh, where's my where do my parents live? Somerville, South Carolina, is not a segregated place, but there's it's not actually it's not too segregated. It's not right? like, like Boston. It's not like Boston. Right? <laughs> like it's not it's not like that. And it's not um, it's a place where, where, where black and white people have a, actually a lot of casual yeah, interaction yeah. and right. a lot of casual integration. Um, and be, for because of reasons I'm sure people can imagine, um, have you know often have more intimate connections, especially for people who are from those areas, right. um, than you might find elsewhere. Right. And so. It's not as if I wouldn't say anyone's like more comfortable talking about these things, but 
the I think the I think the the raw materials for um, uh, dialogue might be a bit more plentiful. Right. When when there's just like more regular interaction. Yeah, yeah, right. There, there. I think in that conversation that you were citing with Aisha, um, uh, that someone referenced that SNL skit with Chris Rock and uh, right after the election. Yeah. Am I remembering that correctly? Where um, where Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock were like, "Of course, this is going to happen," and and all of the white SNL cast members were amazed and shocked and outraged. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, what we might be looking at politically moving forward. Um, you mentioned how you were, uh, well, how the sort of never Trump movement that I think um, uh, a lot of people maybe naively thought was materialized within the GOP didn't. Um, do you, as, as a student of history and, and, and someone who um, pays a lot of attention to history, is that something that you think is going to have lasting repercussions for the GOP? I mean, in, in, in my perhaps failure of imagination, it's impossible for me to see how it doesn't, um, especially so, so with- This is the, the, lack, the, the failure of a never Trump to emerge? Just the fact that, that essentially, with very few exceptions, the entire GOP yeah. right now is going along with um, not only what he's, he's doing and saying racially, but just the shitstorm of, of, of uh, of initiatives and policies and everything that he's putting forward, um, uh, is that something that you think is going to, um, that we will look back at uh, with the same type of reprobation for the current GOP that, um, that we might have uh, about people who supported um, slavery or segregation yeah. or? No, this is interesting because I, I just remember the conversation prior to the election was like, is the GOP gonna collapse, right? Like it's like yeah, yeah, right. You know the the ass heap of history. So I don't think it's true. I mean, my you know, will will the Democrats take over the House and the Senate, right, and right, will right. the GOP be a party in four years? And those kind of conversations I, I've always thought were silly. A because you know the American party system survived the Civil War. I yeah, think yeah. They, can, they can survive a lot. Right. Um, it just is gonna change quite a bit when it hits sort of major events. And I think, I do think this will have lasting repercussions for the Republican Party. And I think those repercussions will simply be that it's gonna enter like a new stage of its of its existence. If it went from being first like a sectional anti-slavery party to kind of like a, a big business party to for the last 50 years, just like ideologically conservative party, I think it is, in, in all the while, in, in the elements of each of these are always, was always present within the, within yeah, the party. Right. They, they become dominant here and there. I think one element that's always been within the party, which is kind of an a, uh, implicit commitment to you know, the cultural and political hegemony of white America, is now going to become the dominant thread. Right? That more, right. more than tax cuts or small government, the thing that is going to unify the Republican Party is this notion that um, uh, that the people in the United States are, are white and that they are the legitimate holders of power. That, that I think, is, is more or less Trump's, like, big sure. message. Yeah. Um, and is that something that GOP, that elected GOP officials, I mean, I guess they're showing that they're comfortable with that, but right. I, I, um, I don't even know what my question is. I mean, you know, I, I, I've been uh, continually just amazed that, that 
you know, that Paul Ryan, that um, even John McCain, despite um, some of his pushing back, um, uh, you know, that Lindsey Graham, that any number of people are more or less okay with this. Everyone has their their particular like goals or ideological agenda. So like Paul Ryan is an ideological conservative. He he seems to believe it's like a, a basic question of morality that the United States should be a low tax and low service country. And so if to accomplish that it requires signing on to a popular movement that's based less than any ideology and more than in just sort of a, a naked cultural claim, uh, a, you could call it a populist claim in, in the European sense, right. in sort of uh, uh, anti-pluralistic European sense, then um, they'll do it, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a price they'll pay for, for that agenda. And that's, that's sort of how I see this working out. And I think eventually, you know, and this all assumes, I mean, this does assume that the Trump presidency doesn't end in some like catastrophic way, right? Like if that happens, then- like what would be a catastrophic way? I don't, I don't know, like it, let's say it turns out that Donald Trump knew full well of contact and cooperation with the, the, Russians, the Putin government, right? right? Like it's, which is like not a crazy thing. I mean, it's not, not remotely. That's not, yeah. not outside their own possibility. But, 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 what's, but yeah, that, would, that would, I mean, that would be the kind of thing that could so tarnish a party that um, could it? I mean, what seems amazing to me is how much that's a possibility and how little anyone seems to care. Yeah, I mean, that's what's. I think the thing that makes all of this difficult in terms of trying to figure out what will happen is that American politics is it's beyond hyper polarized. Right. You could. You don't really need to know much more about a person than like how they voted in the previous two elections to guess how they'll vote for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. And that hyperpolarization, the extent to which people will just vote for someone with an R next to their name or a D next to their name, means that it's it's genuinely difficult to say like what what would cause a collapse, what would cause something to like like an earthquake in American politics, um, outside of like massive external events like a, right. like a depression or like a big war or something right. like that. Um, I mean, I started off, you know, um, in the way distant past of a month ago, thinking that uh, it was um, incredibly unlikely that Trump would not be impeached during his presidency and have come almost 180 degrees around that, and thinking that uh, it's increasingly difficult for me to imagine a, any scenario in which a GOP-led Congress would impeach him, right. regardless of what happens. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to say what will happen to the GOP. I do think that this sort of ethno-nationalist thing is here to stay in the Republican Party. And I say that because it kind of reflects what American history, what has been the, the recurring pattern in American history, which is that as, as either a state or locality or what have you undergoes racial change, there is a, a massive backlash. And you can almost think of what's happening to the country at large, what happened to California in the 90s, when the, the rising immigrant population caused basically like a 10-year anti-immigrant backlash yeah, yeah. right um but in i mean that in the end ended up wiping out the california gop like it just right. it's, a, it's a rump party at this point um but i mean the united states is, is quite big and uh given the structure of our elections given um the extent to which parties in power can do a lot to to, to shape electorates and shape election outcomes 
You mean in, with dis gerrymandering with, districts? With, and, and right. you know, it's an open question as to whether or not um, this will damage the Republican Party in the long term way, or whether whether Trump will, maybe Trump will just have a normal four or eight years and will have the axis of American politics will now turn will not turn on whether or not you want small government or big government, or that will still be a part of it, but essentially whether or not you see the United States as being a multiracial country or not. Um, when you said a normal um, for eight years, I have to admit that my heart rate. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's uh, uh, um, I mean, just, just my, uh, my anxiety levels since the election um, have been off the charts and I've found uh, increasingly that I need to not only not be on social media, but like, not read the newspaper for a while, um, you don't have that luxury. Nope. Uh, <laughs> um, and so um, uh, what has that been like? I mean, have you found that um, it's been difficult to sort of be in the middle of this without any break? Um, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those things where I've, I've you know, said the serenity prayer to myself and accepted that I will never escape at least my like 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Monday through Friday or Sunday through Friday, honestly, of this being kind of just my life. Um, but that doesn't mean in the times when um, I'm not working that I can't avoid it. And so, for example, whenever I talk to my parents, my like mom really wants to talk about politics. And I was like, let's talk about not that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So right. literally anything but, but that. Right. Um, I've got I've sort of like, I've always had photography as a hobby. Now it's, I've like, kind of really dived into it as a way of just like having a firm break from, you know, work. Um, and so that, that has mostly meant doing darkroom work and kind of like spending a lot of time developing film and making prints and kind of isolating myself from politics. Uh, and yeah, just like kind of really deliberately making effort to separate my work from my life because it actually is very, I think, and you, you know this as well, it's very easily as a journalist to kind of just like be completely consumed yeah. um, in, in what you do. Um, precisely because it's like you can write anywhere, you can, you can do research, you can do reporting anywhere. Right, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and once you become known for writing about things, um, you will always get people approaching you to, you know, I mean, I, I, I on the one hand am gratified when people come to me and ask me to write about things I've written about in the past. On the other hand, uh, I now am basically ignoring all emails that ask me to write about Trump's insane anti-vaccine uh, notions because I just don't want to deal with it and I'm right. not sure what I can add to the conversation <laughs> right. at this point besides saying it's crazy. Um, uh, before we open it up, I want to talk a little bit, um, I've only gotten through about a quarter of the questions uh, that I wanted to ask, but I want to talk a little bit um, about journalism generally, about yeah. journalism today generally. Um, uh, and one question that I've been struggling with a lot is um, both um, our, meaning the media's role uh, in, um, in the election, uh, whether the, the, the public was well served by, by how we covered it, um, and two, whether we have the tools to um, to not only cover a Trump administration, but to cover uh, a world in which there are alternative facts and which, um, you know, essentially you have 
not a 50-50 split, but you know, maybe 40% of the population that thinks that CNN and the New York Times and is what is fake news. Um, uh, so that's a very broad, open-ended yeah. question. Um, but uh, but let's start with 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 how the media did covering the 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 2016 election. You know, you got to cover it from a vantage point. Um, there's still this sort of mythologized ideal of objectivity in American journalism. Um, how do you think places like um, the wire services, the networks, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, how did they do in covering yeah. the election? I think, I mean, I think it's a pretty mixed bag. I think that in, in, across all outlets and across all different types of media, whether that's print uh, versus uh, network news, whether that's cable news, whatever, there's, there's been great work done. Mm -hmm. um, there's absolutely no question of that. Uh, on, on the same token, <laughs> at a certain point, the election became about, uh, became about Trump saying crazy things versus emails. Right. And yeah. I think that's a function of, of, of choices of media coverage. Um, and I mean, frankly, I think, I think it reflects an implicit assumption among a lot of people covering the election that, that Trump was going to lose. Right. And so you had to look for ways to, to scrutinize, um, scrutinize Hillary Clinton and you can kind of just focus on the spectacle of Trump. And I don't, I don't think that served people quite well. I just read a story today about um, uh, Trump voters who are surprised that he plans to cut Medicaid. Which, if you, if you did any policy journalism yeah, or read yeah. any policy journalism, right. that, that's, that should be a surprise. Like, right. Trump is a Republican candidate. Um, the Republican Party has you know, said repeatedly that it intends to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and that means cutting the Medicaid expansion and cutting Medicaid even deeper after that. Um, the fact that, that a lot of Americans didn't realize this, I think, reflects like, a kind of failing a failure, part, right. um, part of um, the collective news media, um, a kind of a... a, a preoccupation with the sensational over kind of actually scrutinizing the candidates and um, not quite you know communicating the full stakes of of the election um, it's also I think this sort of knee-jerk ingrained tendency um, in American journalism to to do on the one hand on the other hand and this notion that if you were covering a Trump scandal, it was somehow unfair right. if you were also not covering a Clinton scandal. Um, it, you know, as, as someone who, who writes about science, one of the things that fascinates me is um, this uh, a, a, a reality that I think the media has a very hard time accepting, which is um, if you repeat something, even if you repeat it within the context of it not being true, a fairly high percentage of people are going to come away from that right. thinking it's true. Right. Um, and that's a well-known fact, but I think it's largely a fact that the American media does not grapple with. Right. Um, yeah, it's actually, it's actually very hard to dispel false information without reinforcing it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's legitimately difficult to do, and I think that compounds with another thing I'm not sure the American media as a whole has really grappled with, which is, you know, as far as political scientists can tell, there is, there are asymmetric changes in American politics. The, the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party aren't mirror images of each other, in that the Republican Party has 
moved, uh, moved ideologically in ways that aren't equivalent to what's happened on the Democratic side. And that does require you to sort of like offer different kinds of context and like right. cover them a little differently. Right. And I'm not sure, um, and I think, I think Trump demonstrates this very well. I mean, there was, until it became untenable, there was an effort to sort of treat Trump as kind of a normal yep. candidate or a normal I think nominee. after it became untenable, right. there was still that effort. Um, and I'm not sure, I mean, part of me, you know, I didn't, we mentioned earlier that I didn't really study journalism. And part of me wonders if part of the problem is that a lot of people doing journalism, like, study journalism. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> and that there's no, there's surprisingly, there's not enough, I'm not going to say surprisingly little, there's not enough historical grounding, there's not enough grounding in social science, there's not enough grounding right. in, in, in disciplines um, outside of the profession. Um, and as such, people get wedded to sort of like what are basically sort of like ways of doing things that ought to be a little more flexible yeah, right. than they are. And this doesn't mean, I mean, this, does, this isn't a question of like objectivity or bias or whatever. It's just a question of sort of like how do you, how do you understand something in its proper context? How do you understand something um, uh, in, given, given its history and given everything that's happening. So the last question before I open it up, um, uh, what tools um, do we need, do journalists need um, to not only cover this administration, but cover this role in history? What, yeah. what, what can journalists do um, to rise to the challenge that, that we're facing? I mean, the thing, the thing I would recommend, and this is just now speaking as like a, a history nerd, is I think journalists need to figure out how they want to be remembered, right? And in, 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 a, in a very, very serious way, like if, if you think that the Trump administration represents something, if not unprecedented, then like awry in mm -hmm. American politics and American political culture, then how do you want to be remembered? How do you want to be thought of in responding to it? And for my part, you know, you read, um, you read books like The Race Beat about the reporters who covered mm -hmm. the civil rights movement. Yeah. And there were mainstream outlets who, who were dismissive, um, who did not take these things seriously, who were hostile, and they look very bad with the hindsight of history. Yeah. And I think, I, I think kind of deciding whose side you're on here um, is right. And that, that's not a partisan thing. That is recognizing that the Trump administration has made, made a priority of, of targeting marginal groups in the yeah, country. Yeah. Um, and so how are you going to report that? Yeah, I, I think covering the, covering the civil rights movement is an excellent example because um, the outlets that argued against covering it aggressively or, um, uh, or covering it from sort of Mount Olympus did so with using the justification that like, well, who are we to decide right. whether, uh, um, whether it's proper that uh, we should treat all citizens equally? Uh, that's not our call to make. And that, I mean, I, uh, a, um, sort of a, a colleague of sorts, Brian Boitler at the New Republic, made this argument before the election, and I think it's one that journalists should grapple with, and that is, what is, why, what is, it, what is a profession for? Right. Is our profession to defend the prerogatives of journalists? Are we, are we defending free speech? 
or are we defending kind of pluralism and constitutionalism? Are we, are we, as James Madison envisioned, very much part and parcel of what makes the American system work? And if we're the latter, then that actually does imply a different set of responsibilities yeah. and obligations. It means that you can't cover something like the civil rights movement from Mount Olympus. You right. have to, if you, you have to see it from the perspective of, oh, these things are actually threatening the kind of society that we want to have. Right. Um, that is having a perspective, I guess, but it's having kind of a... Uh, a perspective know, as a human being. Right. And, and a perspective as like someone, as, as a profession that values um, uh, the, a, a liberal, pluralist, right. constitutionalist government. Right, right. Um, let me uh, open it up. Um, come up to microphones, ask away. We still have a good chunk of time. And identify, if you're comfortable, identify yourself uh, just so we know who you are also. Sure. Um, hi, my name is Dane. I'm a law student at Harvard. Thanks for being here, Jamel. No, no problem. So right now we've empowered a, a, a right-wing version of white nationalism, how I see it. But there's also, I see conversations on the left among politicians and activists and academics. And there's a, there's a sort of analog, right? There's a left-wing white nationalism that could emerge. And there's a debate going into the next set of elections. Um, do we center race or do we avoid race to reach certain people that could vote Democrat but maybe feel uncomfortable by centering race? So how do you see this conversation going over the next couple of years? And is there a difference between maybe what is right and what is most politically expedient? Yeah. It's a great question. Um, so I think it's definitely the case that you do, within, I guess, the broad American center left have this ongoing conversation about, you know, race versus class, um, which, for my part, I think kind of the, this is all, like, very overstated, but you have this conversation happening. I think, I mean, I think where people are ending up basically depends on how they envision a future coalition, right? If you believe that the goal ought to be mobilizing non-voters, mobilizing people not participating in the process as it stands, then there is no real reason not to continue uh, centering concerns of racial equality and such. Um, I think this is sort of the driving force behind uh, Keith Ellison's bid for the DNC chair, which, right. parenthetical, party committee chairs aren't that important. And <laughs> It's really insane to me how this has become right. like this this thing. But as it's as it stands, that's like the symbolism of a Keith Ellison uh, uh, pick. If you envision a future coalition as necessarily winning back or incorporating some number of uh, uh, white working class people, however defined, and there are a lot of questions about how you define them properly then I do think you run into some of these difficulties, in part because the history of white working class politics in this country has been one of class mobilization. It's also been one of a defense of white hierarchy and white hegemony. Um, uh, and oftentimes, even nascent uh, interracial movements involving white working class politics have ended up collapsing because of the tensions with that. Um, uh, you can look at the fusionist movement in North Carolina in the 1890s as an example of that. You can look at the fact that outside of the radical, the radical wings of the labor movement in the 1930s, there's a real hostility to interracial unionism among a lot of rank and file 
um, union members. Uh, so like CIO aside or you know, United Auto Workers aside or the communists aside, um, your you know, mainstream factory worker in Detroit wasn't too happy about letting a black family move in there into their neighborhood. So if you envision the future coalition as being kind of centered around or necessarily including a large portion of the white working class, and I, I do think you're going to have to like you're going to run into these 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 tensions. You're going to have to you're you're going to have to resolve them somehow. Um, my sense is that looking at where the energy is um, among American left wing movements, uh, even within the Democratic Party and its center left. Um, I, don't think, I don't think those tensions are gonna emerge too much, um, given that the energy is with, you know, it's with movements like Fight for 15 and Black Lives Matter and uh, Moral Mondays, these intentionally intersectional, intentionally multiracial uh, uh, movements that refuse to sacrifice a commitment to racial equality or sacrifice a commitment to economic equality. Um, I will say, though, that there is, you know, there's, if people are expecting, like, a groundswell wave of, you know, like, support for stuff like this, I'm not sure that's the case. I think, I think, given the history of, like, white American politics, there's going to be, there's going to be a hard limit on the number of, like, white people, period, that are going to support this kind of um, uh, left movement. Do I think? Do I think that we reached that limit? Obviously not, because if we had, we wouldn't be having this conversation probably. But um, I, I do think that that's a that's a thing to keep in mind. Like, there's a reason. There's a reason why since 1968, um, a national Democratic presidential nominee has not won a majority of white voters. That in '68. Not in 72, not in 76. Bill Clinton won a plurality, never won a majority, never, never outperformed uh, an opponent with white voters. Since 1968, it has not happened. Um, and that is not an accident. Thanks. No one else will keep the, uh, keep the ball rolling. I'll, I'll give it a try. Um, just to add to that last observation, um, of course, uh, Democrats have won the popular vote. Democrat presidential nominees have won the popular vote in what, five out of the last six, six out of the last seven elections? I think eight six, out of the last nine, right? Whatever, whatever. Some, some large proportion over the last you know, 30, 30 right. years, uh, which, which illustrates why, uh, illustrates a number of, uh, of the changes you've been talking about. Um, I'm, uh, I've got a whole bunch of questions for you, and I'll just choose one because it's, it's one I really am most perplexed by, which is one of the big themes of Republican politics for a while now, and certainly Trump's campaign, was American exceptionalism. You know, we've got a, the Make America Great Again is a claim that America, I mean, it's a claim of a bunch of things, but it's a claim that America is, is uh, distinctive, has a unique role, unique power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one of the really interesting things is a lot of the, the, the social, um, you know, just social facts um, that some of which fed into economic anxiety and so forth, uh, emphasize how unexceptional we are. You know, we're, we're uh, um, our, our lifespan is not 
doesn't even come close to exceeding, you know, being near the top of the tables for, for developed countries. I just saw a paper reported yesterday or today that says um, uh, growth in life expectation. Uh, America is going to fall way behind um, over the next, uh, predict the next 20, 30 years. This is in the Lancet, I think. Um, and there, you know, there's, I think, uh, one of the things you have with, with more access to information from more parts of the world, this sort of, this globalization of experience, is there's more and more perception that, that whatever the claims may be, whatever the, 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 the sort of braggadocio about American ex uh, exceptionalism, there's lots of evidence that this isn't the only way to make it in the world and may not be the best. And I'm wondering how much, um, how much you think uh, uh, sort of this cultivated uh, dime show nostalgia played a role in this election and how much you think that sustains over time? How can, you know, with, with the data that are coming out, the reality of, of, of the various social ills we face in, you know, as compared to other places, how much do you think that plays out going forward? Yeah. So I, I, definitely, I definitely do believe that this um, notion of American exceptionalism, um, of inherent greatness, uh, played a huge part in this election. You think right, you, it is the case that for, I mean, for the, the better part of the people who voted for Donald Trump, um, who are above the age of 40, they have a very um, distinct memory uh, of a United States that at least felt more prosperous and more comfortable for them um, than it is now. And so this sort of, and you're seeing this, I mean, you see this kind of nostalgia politics in, the, in Europe as well, right? That there's a very distinct nostalgia politics happening of grasping back to um, a time of presumed and perceived um, stability and prosperity, which is like, you know, both, both true and not. It's, it's, they're, they're, it's true for some people, not for, not for others. Um, I tend to think that look, looking at, I said as an aside earlier on um, of thinking about uh, populism in the European sense. And what I mean by that is um, when Americans say populism, they usually just mean sort of like really liberal. Um, but when Europeans say populism, they actually mean something quite distinct. And what they mean is a type of politics that uh, makes exclusive claims to, to representation, right? That like um, uh, my party is the people. And if you are against my party, you, you are, are against, against the people. people. Um, it is anti-pluralist. It is not inherently authoritarian, but it leans towards that. Uh, it, it is um, often tied up in lots of other nasty, stuff, nasty things. I think Donald Trump is that kind of populist, right? Like this sort of European-style populist. And the thing about those kinds of politicians, when they grapple to power, is that precisely because um, they do make this like very profound connection with their supporters, elevating them as the representation of the nation, it is hard it is hard for external events to dislodge that, right? Like, it is, it, it, for example, um, uh, I would say in, in Hungary, Viktor Orban has presided over deep cuts to the welfare state, deep, deep cuts to the welfare state. Uh, his supporters still love him, right? Even though they were relying on it, they still love him because in their minds, he is, even with these difficulties, he is working for them. 
um, he's working for them and elevating them as sort of the rightful, uh, the rightful claimants of Hungary and Hungarian politics. That dynamic I can very easily see happening in the United States with Trump, which would mean that even as he talks about America's exceptionalism, even as he, as he, even if he, even as he makes promises to make America great again, um, uh, even if external conditions don't meet any of that, actual conditions don't meet any of that, that the, the, connection, the connection won't be broken, um, which is actually really troubling for thinking about how to you know, get out of all of this, right? Um, if that is the kind of politics we're dealing with. So I hope, hope that answers the question. It does, though. I'd say, as, as somebody who's 58, I mean, my, my my political memories range from you know the Vietnam War protests to stagflation to lots of lots of um, you know uh, the, you know from the 60s to the 80s there was a you know which is the, the the sort of formative years for a lot of people who I think ended up voting for Trump a lot of white people who ended up voting for Trump were years not of um, you know uh, of of memory, even, you know, fogged memories of a supposedly idyllic 50s, but, but of, of, you know, much more fraught and much more um, uh, really kind of fragile. You know, what, what, it wasn't obvious in the, in the 70s that America was going to prevail in the Cold War right, right. or be, 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 you know. I mean, that's, that, that's the power of nostalgia, right? right. Like, to, to use a really <laughs> trivial example, I'm, I'm 29 and I am sort of the Star Wars prequels were made for people my age back in the late 90s. And there are, there are there, I have peers in the world who are like, oh, the prequels were great. They're great movies. Right. I really enjoyed them, which is nonsense. Like, they're bad movies. <laughs> yes, yes. They're objectively Send them to the re-education camps. They're true deplorables. Right, right, right. <laughs> but but because, because they exist in sort of childhood memory, right, they, they exist, they, they, they're tinged by nostalgia. You have a lot of people who are like, oh, yeah, they were, they were, they were fun. They were enjoyable. When that's just not, <laughs> it's just not true. It's just to, so I'm not accused of being, uh, presenting alternative facts. It is six of the last seven elections six of the Democrats. Seven. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Melissa Nobles, professor of political science here. And um, so I have two questions. One is uh, uh, about how you view um, the, uh, I'm trying to make an assessment of how to make sense of Trump, believe it or not. This might not be reassuring for people who study political science, but I'm trying to figure out, is it that, on the one hand, when I listen to the, how the press covers him, on the one hand, there's this notion that he's completely, you know, kind of exceptional in ways and, and outside of the mainstream, and just, we're all struggling to make sense of him. Then on the other hand, there is a way in which you can study him as simply, um, for all of the radicalism of his program, he still has to presumably still go through the ordinary channels of government. And he's doing it not very well. And, um, and so even if to our, as we, as we watch with some, with you know, different levels of concern, the hope is that eventually certain rhythms of governance will kick in. Legislation has to be passed. He can't you know, govern through executive orders entirely. At some point, there's actually going to have to be legislation. And that there will be certain, all of this will help to tame and control him. And, and the Republicans also will have to get in line, even if they're trying to basically dismantle the New Deal, right? We can, it seems to me that's part of the, part of the desire. And so, 
is it, I'm trying to figure out how, it seems to me the press is trying to figure out how to cover him. Is he incompetent or crazy like a fox? Like which, you know, which is it? And depending on which way you view him, you would judge him accordingly. That's one. The second question is, um, how much do you, you know, I, without prejudice, it seemed to me some of this had to do with uh, the election in part implicitly had, was a rejection of the first black president, or at least a backlash. Without exaggerating too much, so you read the article in the Atlantic of looking at this election as right after Reconstruction, right, kind of the, the redemptionist, and in fact, language of redemption was used. So I wonder, you being a student of, of, polit of, of, of politics and of history, did you see this in certain ways as through the lens of looking at the third Reconstruction being civil rights movement, and now um, a backlash against it? Um, in a, and we've only been basically 50 years of a multi-party democracy where we had an actual multi racial electorate that could vote. Right. And, um, and maybe there's a backlash against what full democracy brings. Right. Um, so for, for the first question, crazy like a fox or incompetent, um, I, I, I don't. Or crazy like an incompetent. Or crazy like an incompetent. <laughs> Which actually, I think, I think, I think, I think, I think that's actually, yeah. that's the, and I think that's the correct one. I think it's, it's undoubtedly true that at least the people around Trump have a very radical notion of what they want to do in government, right? You like, wrote a really great piece that I loved about Bannon and Miller and all that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Bannon, Bannon is, you know, give him, give him a top hat and like an old-timey watch, and he's like straight, he's straight in the 1920s. He's a 1920s yeah. style, like, restri immigration restrictionist, sort of like, you know, decline of the white race style thinker, um, except like, you know, uh, almost a, a farcical one, right? Um, but Bannon and Miller and, um, and, and Sessions all do have like a very well-defined ideological view and a well-defined sense of what they want to do. Uh, I'm not sure if Trump does. I, I honestly, I mean, Trump, Trump has long had nativist instincts. You see that going back as far as the 1980s. He's long had demagogic instincts. But whether he has any like firm thought patterns is up in the air. <laughs> um, so they have, they're, they're crazy. Definitely. But this is also, in, in all the reporting from the White House has confirmed this, I mean, this is also a profoundly inexperienced White House. Um, not just in terms of direct executive experience, of which, of which none of the principals in the White House have, uh, but in terms of just experience in government. Um, Trump, from reporting I've read, does not seem to, un did, not, did not understand that the courts can stop White House action. Like it would be, well, he's like, oh, yeah. I didn't know this could happen. Um, uh, you have. And was like mortally offended when he found right, out. Right, 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 he was, he was angry. Um, he's learning about checks and balances in real time. Why didn't anyone uh, tell me about this? <laughs> Bannon and Miller, I mean, Miller was a communications director in Sessions' Senate office, and Bannon is like a failed producer slash guy who ran a crazy website. Like, they, and you see this in the drafting of the travel ban, especially the Muslim ban. They did not check in with the relevant agencies. They did not, you know, dot their I's or cross their T's. And the result was an order that was hard, difficult to interpret, um, uh, extremely far-reaching, whether intentionally or not, and very vulnerable to legal challenge. And so I think, I think for as much as there's a, there is radicalism at play here, this is also like an inexperienced, in a lot of ways, arrogant and as a result, incompetent administration. Um, what will be interesting to see happen 
is first where the power centers are in this administration. It, it seems that you know Bannon, for example, is like actually a legitimate power center in the administration. Is putting pressure on kind of the agencies he's interested in, like Homeland Security, um, the State Department, the Department of Justice. Um, will those agencies push back? Um, a lot of the federal government is understaffed right now. There's there there are hundreds of uh, Senate confirmable seats have not even received nominees, and so how is that going to affect things? Um, it's possible that at least for the next few months we're in for a situation where everyone really wants to do stuff, but like no one no one quite knows how to do it and how to do it effectively. And this beyond the White House, I mean. The State Department, the Education Department, uh, uh, Housing and Urban Development, the EPA, not the EPA, not the EPA, but um, Commerce, the Treasury, are run by people with no government experience, um, which is an obstacle to getting an agenda through. So crazy and incompetent and just plain inexperienced. And the thing is for the administration is that you really only do have a limited window of time for getting stuff accomplished. And it's entirely possible that the first, this first month of very frankly catastrophic missteps has shortened that window considerably. I mean, I, 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 I still think the Republican Congress really wants to repeal Obamacare. I think the window for that happening is like closing really soon. And I think we may end up with like, you know, some uh, modest cuts to the program called Obamacare repeal, and then just kind of just moving on because they can't incur the the political damage, and the White House just doesn't want to get want to get mired into some massive uh, massive fight. Okay, so uh, uh, understanding Trump's election as a backlash. This has basically been my frame for this um, going back to uh, the primaries. Um, uh, and a, a backlash against the civil rights movement uh, more broadly, right? Than not, right, right, right. Against, and I, I, you, the 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 point you made about us only being fifty years into multiracial democracy, I think, is actually really important. Um, we take that for it, to the extent that the American that American democracy is multiracial, we take it for granted. We take it for granted that um, uh, we are a society where people of all races and ethnicities are free and equal and can participate equally. But for most of American history, for, for, uh, for millions of still living American citizens, that was not the case. And um, in, you know, in quite a few communities in this country, I think, I think the stat is something like uh, seven out of 10 white Americans don't have uh, a friendship with a person of color, right? Like most white Americans don't really have close relationships with people who look different than them. Um, it's actually not at all, given, given those facts, it's not at all crazy to imagine that electing a guy named Barack Hussein Obama um, uh, prompted a backlash against the, against the perceived racial change, against the perceived sense that um, this is an inversion of the proper order of things. And because our history is one of um, uh, sort of progress retrenchment, progress retrenchment, I do, think, I do think Trump's election is kind of like the, I mean, and this is actually for me the question, it's either the culmination of a slow moving backlash beginning in the, in, in the late 1960s, or it's the harbinger of like 
something, <laughs> or something pretty terrible um, that, that may last uh, quite a long time, depending uh, on, on, yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's... Have a good night, folks. Yes. <laughs> um, precisely because the United States is going through this major demographic shift. It is becoming a country... I wouldn't necessarily say it's becoming a majority-minority country because I think that kind of overstates or understates the degree to which whiteness as a political category can't expand. Um, Wait, understates the degree to which it can expand? It can expand, right? That like 100 years ago, people didn't think of like Italians as white and, and Russians Irish, as white. They were, right, like, right. There were other races of people who were kind of yeah, yeah. Yeah, white. Um, and then a combination of kind of external events like the, the, the world wars, um, the depression, and uh, and sort of you know other social pressures created a new class of white right. people, and it's not it's, to me it's not it's not obvious that it's not going to happen again for some category of people that we don't recognize as white today. But nonetheless, it is the case that the the the, the share of the country that is uh, directly descended from or who we recognize as white is shrinking. Um, so, American history pretty exclusively demonstrates that, like in places where that happens, there there are vicious backlashes, and this seems to be uh, part of the pattern. Um, and yeah, so again, for me, the question is like, are we at the end or are we at the beginning? And I think you can make a good case for for either one, um, or are we in a place where you know? Winning control of uh, uh, so many states and, and so much government gives you an ability to kind of like entrench existing power. I mean, that's the, the the case for this being the beginning is in part the fact that the the coalition here, the Trump coalition, is uh, is not is is a shrinking chunk of the country, but is geographically extremely well distributed. Right. Um, so, given the electoral college. Given that distribution, it's entirely possible that you know, yeah, maybe you lose some college-educated whites, maybe maybe the the non-white population is growing in places like Virginia and uh, Georgia. Um, but essentially, it, so essentially, you have you have Democrats getting ninety percent of the votes along the coasts and right. forty-eight percent of the right. votes in the middle of the country. And if you if you if you end up losing white working class voters, eight to eight, you know. Uh, two to eight, or I guess that'd just be one to four, right? Um, uh, or one to one to five. Uh, then, yeah, you can. This can, can continue going for a while. Like the United States could just end up being, to kind of put it in like simple terms, I feel like American future is either something like California or something like uh, Florida um, or like Mississippi, right? Like. <laughs> There's the Mississippi option, which is just sort of like whites vote 90% one way, non-whites vote 90% the other, and the politics favor, favor the, the white plurality. Yeah. Hi, my name's Dan. Um, <clears throat> I guess to the point of like what a multiracial, what a multicultural democracy would look like going forward, I have in mind and just kind of want your take on, shortly after the election, there were a lot of pieces uh, written by, I guess, what I would call like white liberal universalists or um, someone like Mark Lilla or Jonathan Haidt, you know, talking about going forward, 
a multi-ethnic democracy has to be based on a very robust project of cultural assimilation and a minimization of difference, whether that be ethnic difference or religious difference. And um, I guess I sort of feel like that on the underside of the, the push to like the compassion for the Trump voter, like there's the, the direction toward, oh, they're really voting because of economic anxiety, but there's also this sense that we have to respect their desire for a monocultural society. I feel under that as well. And so I guess I just wonder how, how you respond to that kind of movement right. or. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I, you know, to be frank, I, I, I respond to that notion with like a fair amount of hostility, like <laughs> instinctive hostility, in part because I think, I think the analysis you see from, from Haidt or from Lilla is, uh, is it's lacking in any racial analysis. And so to say that we have to respect a desire for like a monocultural United States and that maybe the aim of our politics should be that kind of assimilation is essentially to say that the, the culture in question is a kind of like kind of general like colorblind whiteness kind of thing to which people are assimilated in, which A, I think it's just sort of like, I, I, I'm resistant to the notion that people should like jettison their cultural traditions um, for, for that reason. But, but B, ignores the fact that the United States is sort of a racial, racially hierarchical society. And that doing that actually robs you of the ability to, uh, to deal with that fact. Um, and it seems, it seems to me a kind of compromise um, that disadvantages people who are you know, lower on the racial totem pole. Um, it, in a way, reifies race hierarchy rather than doing anything to dismantle it. And so that's, that's sort of the source of my hostility towards it, but that does you know, raise the question, what, what do you do? Like, how do you build um, uh, uh, a multiracial society, and, and one specifically that is trying to make race less salient for people's life outcomes? Um, for my part, I mean, that, that does mean that you you do have to, to make race less salient for people's life outcomes, you have to make race salient. You have to show people that it does affect their life outcomes. You can't, can't beat around the bush there. And it's, it's remarkable to me, that Lilla piece was remarkable to me for a lot of reasons, but one of them is there's a passage in the piece where he approvingly cites Martin Luther King Jr. Um, uh, I, I think this is that piece. I want to say this is that piece. Um, uh, when like the whole point of the civil rights movement was actually like confronting people with the reality of the situation, like not letting people tear their eyes away. And that's, I think, you know, I wrote a piece after the election uh, about the Jesse Jackson campaigns in the 1980s, which I think are, are really instructive and offer kind of a model for sort of um, uh, politics of uh, solidarity, that it's solidarity and mutual disadvantage and not so much in trying to force assimilation into a common you know, vision of the normal. Um, and I think that kind of thing is possible, uh, but I think, I think the draw in power of race hierarchy is such that it's like just very difficult. And so I think, I think there are models in American history and in American life for like genuine multiracial democracy. I, I mentioned Moral Mondays earlier in down in North Carolina, which is exactly this, kind of like people of different races and class backgrounds and um, 
uh, gender identification coming together on the basis of their uh, of, of shared recognition of disadvantage. Um, but it's really difficult, and it runs right into um, uh, actual, you know, reaction and actual uh, opposition from uh, people who like just oppose that vision of the United States. Uh, but to, to sum up, I, I, I think <laughs> the, the, the Lilla height notion, I find it's just sort of a backdoor way of saying, it's a backdoor way of making the same kind of claim Trump makes, basically. It is a more palatable way of making that claim. And I reject that claim. I reject the claim that the United States um, uh, has some kind of... Uh, core cultural identity outside of its commitment to its sort of enlightenment ideals. My name's Katha. Um, and given the fact that much of the media is owned and controlled by people who are white, and looking at the, um, the election as a place where Trump, who was clearly um, playing to white supremacists all the time. Um, I sort of feel like there was a lot of the media saying, I'm shocked, shocked that there's racism in this country. And I'm wondering how that played out, how, what, what you think about that idea and, and what, you know, how you can move forward from that. Yeah. Um. So I think it played out in an interesting way, and it's, it's still playing out, which is that there is, at this point, a genre of reported story that you can almost fill in the blanks in. It is city reporter goes to, I don't know, like depressed Rust Belt town, talks to people who live in places where the jobs have been gone for 20 years, and they're voting for Trump, and it's very sad, and it's very depressed, and it's a portrait of American industrial decline. What's funny is that you could also find these pieces written in the 80s. It's like kind of like the recurring, recurring type of 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 uh, a story. But these are very prevalent in the past election, and I think. There's nothing inherently wrong with these pieces, but I think they reflect the whiteness of the news media, or at least certain parts of the news media, in that they didn't actually take people's political decisions and choices at face value, right? Instead of, instead of saying, instead of, you know, someone who says, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm suspicious of immigrants or I am hostile to this cultural change, it is an attempt to say, yeah, but they, they also, you know, they also live in this depressed town and that, that's obviously influencing their vote. It's kind of an attempt to, to, um, to add nuance where nuance may not necessarily be there. Um, and I, 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 don't, I don't say that as a way of like disparaging anyone, but just, <sighs> I live in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. infamously elected Marion Barry several times to, to mayor. Um, and I've read a lot 
about Marion Barry and his administration and reaction to him. And I cannot recall a similar type of analysis of Barry and of the people who elected him. I cannot recall a similar type of analysis of the people who elected Detroit's uh, succession of bad mayors. Um, and by, by a similar type of analysis, you mean going into minority neighborhoods and, and doing that sort of profile? Right, and, and, and sort of, and sort of ignoring face value and looking for basically some empathetic reason yeah, for yeah, why right. this happened. As opposed um, to this is a shit storm. Right, right. That's a technical term. <laughs> I think that white reporters, for reasons that are entirely understandable, are reluctant to understand people who may well be like their family members and like their friends as acting in ways that are uh, politically acting in ways that are morally objectionable. And so rather than accept that possibility, there I think, I think there is a real uh, urge to look for some underlying reason for why this might be the case. Yeah. A dramatic example is this week, I forgot who published it. Someone published this long profile of not uh, Milo uh, Yiannopoulos, but the dudes who follow him around, like the 20-something-year-old dudes who are his entourage. And these dudes are basically signed up to be like groupies for like a like a, a a bigot, right? Like groupies for a guy whose entire persona is that like he uh, goes after racial minorities and transgender people and women and sort of does so um, explicitly from the perspective that they are not worth as much as uh, as white men. And the piece is very nuanced and empathetic towards these guys and it, it sort of it offers this narrative in which the reason why they're even attracted to someone like Milo is a kind of you know sense of being left adrift in the modern world and, and blah 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 and it's it's it refuses to take them take them at face value it refuses to even posit that maybe the reason why they want to get behind Milo is because they're also bigots <laughs> like straight up and we can understand the impact of that bigotry. We can understand sort of what may be underlying that bigotry, but our, our, our kind of top line observation needs to be that like that's why they signed up. And I don't think it's an accident that everyone involved in like writing and reporting this story was white. And like there was a sense of mutual feeling that like they could recognize people they knew in these dudes. And so there must be something else there that offers some if not, yeah, not, not excuse, but some like deeper reason for why they're acting like this. This isn't them at their core. And I guess I'm not saying it is at anyone's core. I'm saying that we should at least posit that question, right? That like, perhaps, hey, maybe it's possible. Maybe it is the case that you have people who voted for Trump out of a deep-seated frustration with their economic situation. Maybe they voted for Trump because they don't like Mexicans. <laughs> maybe that's it. And, uh, and we just have to deal with that. I'll offer another example of this that I found very troubling. It was a fresh air segment about one of these towns. And it's very much about the sort of the sense of decline that people feel in the town. And then as an aside, the reporter mentions that this town has an active branch of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> 
That seems like the whole story. <laughs> that seems like the thing that we should focus on. And I think that is emblematic of the kind of quest for empathy that ends up, I think, perhaps obscuring uh, more, more than it illuminates. I feel like I sound really hostile to Trump voters, and I'm not. I'm really not. Like, my best friend from, from, from high school, her dad, is sort of like gung-ho fucking Trump, like loves this dude. And I'm, I find this very regrettable. Um, uh, I still love him very much. He's been part of my life uh, since I was a little kid. Um, so it's not, it's not like hostility. It's just that I don't think we should coddle people. I don't think we should, I, don't, I, I do not think that in whether we're trying to understand or win their vote, that we should shy away from the actual bases <laughs> for which people do things. Um, uh, even if it's unflattering or seems insulting to them, I just I refuse, I refuse to do that. Like, I, I find that the conversation around Trump voters reduces them purely to a sense of economic or cultural anxiety, and I I don't think we should do that. I think we should take people at face value. We should understand the surroundings and their context, but also not not turn our eyes away from what might be ugly. And I think, I do think that there is a real, uh, a real preoccupation with turning away. And I, as a related phenomena, I do think there is a lack of attention paid to um, uh, people who face the threat of a Trump administration. So I made this complaint a lot last year, but I read a lot of stories about like, I don't know, Rust Belt, Pennsylvania. I didn't read that many stories about um, uh, uh, Hispanic service workers afraid of getting deported, right? I didn't read very many stories about Muslim Americans who are wondering what they're going to do about their families. I didn't read, my wife teaches in an elementary school that is predominantly uh, Latino and Muslim. I did not read a story about uh, eight-year-old kids afraid of what might happen to their parents. But I read a lot of stories about how people are hurting and voting for Trump. And, and stories about eight-year-old kids who are then saying, build the wall, right. and what their circumstances might be. Right. Like, didn't read very much about the people who might be affected. And I think that is a function of the demographics of journalism. And I apologize for this rant. It's trying, just trying to put, put, put thoughts together here. We have time for one last question. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think you actually, I'm sorry, I'm Kunle. I'm a grad student here. Um, I think you actually started to answer my question a little bit, but I will ask it anyway. Um, I also grew up in Virginia Beach. Oh, where did um, you go to high school? Ocean Lakes. I went to Kellum. Okay. <laughs> that mean, you, are you guys going to like brawl after? <laughs> no, no. I feel like I don't know who Ocean Lakes was, because there's a lot of high schools in, Kel in, in, uh, in Virginia Beach. So like, I remember, I recall that the high school that Kellum folks were always like trying to brawl with was Lansdowne, which is like down the street, but I don't know about Ocean Lakes. Yeah, no, I, I did Scholastic Bowl, so our, in, in, in high school, and so my, our big rival was Princess Anne, so. Um, okay, I'm gonna ask you another question. What year did you graduate from high school? 2011, oh no, but, sorry, 2007. Okay, I graduated in 2005, so there's like a non-trivial chance that we play Scholastic Bowl against each other. <laughs> <laughs> but please, your question. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so, I mean, I've been sort of struggling with this. This is kind of, this is somewhat personal um, that, you know, I, of the people that I sort of like, I'm in touch with or my friends on Facebook or whatever, I don't really know. And I don't have any close relationship with anybody who voted for Trump. But like you said, you do. And like, I'm, you know, I'm sure that having lived in Virginia Beach for 20-ish years that 
there's someone that I know closely that voted for Trump. So how do you sort of like deal with that on like a personal level? Especially my parents are immigrants. Yeah. And so it, it, it feels sort of like, because not, it's not just like, well, Trump was kind of crazy and he's just doing these things. He said he was going to do these things and now he's trying to do these things. So how do you sort of deal with that? Like, not just since you, especially since you're a public figure, the rights about the sort of the moral choice that Trump voters are making, how do you sort of square that? Um, I mean, on a, on a personal level, for me, it's because of just the way our communities are set up, I think a lot of Americans understand politics in this very abstract way, right? That like, it's not necessarily happening to someone they know. And I, I, I actually think, you know, in this case, saying, you know, saying to people, listen, you know, you can support Trump or whatever, but recognize that when he's talking about X, Y, and Z, he's talking about people like me, right? Like, this is not abstract. And so if you endorse it, then, like, understand what you're endorsing and what that means for people like me. And I don't think there's any guarantee that's going to change anyone's mind, but I, I do think at least making people confront that is important. Making people make a choice for themselves. Are they going to uh, uh, deal with any nagging doubt, doubts they might have, or are they going to say, okay, that's just a necessary sacrifice? Um, uh, I will say for myself, you know, my friend's dad, I have not <laughs> done this with him, <laughs> I'm, in part because I just don't see him that often, um, uh, in part because it's like, it's, it's sort of hard, right? It's like hard to go up to someone that you know, you know they're a decent person, and say like, listen, the the dude the dude you support uh, wants wants to like deport a, my friend's mom, right? Like that's, and uh, if if he gets his way, this will have a direct impact in my life. Um, the dude you support wants to uh, supports expanding stop and frisk, and. This may impact my life. I may have to be a bit more careful about how I drive around um, because of the guy you support, and that is a real thing. And that's sort of—I I, I don't know. Um, I, have, I have kind of these two broad ideas, thoughts about moving forward from the present moment and from the present situation. The first one is, you know, broadly just about people who are opposed to Trump across the political spectrum, kind of putting aside some of their differences for the sake of a united front. Um, but the second thing is very much about the necessity of people talking to and interacting with each other and being plain spoken and blunt about what the policies of the moment means for their lives and not flinching away from it. Uh, this goes not just for those of us who are people of color or immigrants um, who know uh, uh, Trump voting people in our lives, but also for you know white Americans who have family members and friends who voted for Trump um, but don't share those political commitments and like actually confronting those family members and friends. I think I think, and I, this is going back to something I said earlier. Um, at a certain point, this was a problem for white people to solve. Um, and so white people need to solve it. Uh, and I, I think, I mean, I hope Hillary Clinton did win more votes um, that there are enough white people who want to solve it to, 
that it can be solved. But at a certain point, um, uh, I can only I, there's a, I can only talk to my friend's dad. My friend needs to talk to her dad. <laughs> like, ultimately, he's not related to me. He's related to her, and uh, maybe maybe she needs to confront her dad. Well, please um, join me in giving a big thank you to Jamel. This is. <laughs>